Uh, we're gonna we're still in our tell me a story of Jesus. You can see behind me, and we're gonna be moving to the Gospel of Matthew chapter twelve this morning. Uh, for the next several weeks, and we'll continue into next week, uh, we've been looking at Jesus uh, healing and doing things uh, that he's being called out about, particularly on the Sabbath day. Uh, so we spent the last three weeks in the Gospel of John chapter 5, looking at how Jesus healed a man uh, at the pool of Bethesda by the sheep gate, and he was called out about that. He was called out about why did he not only heal, but why did he instruct the man to carry his mat through the streets of Jerusalem when it was obviously the Sabbath and that was obviously breaking it. And what we saw there is how Jesus answered the question is he first let the Pharisees, his accusers, know who he was and his identity, his equality with God, and that is what gave him his authority. And then last week we saw as he called forth four witnesses that backed who he was, his character and his nature and his authority and why he did what he did. So we're kind of in this mini sabbatical series within our series as a whole as we move to Matthew chapter 12. Our focus this morning is going to be greater than. And what we're going to see as we walk through this, we'll be in verses 1 through 8, is how Jesus is greater than all things. He's greater than anything we could admire, any place we can be, anyone we admire from our past or currently in our life. He is greater than all things and therefore deserves value in our life. He deserves our adoration. He deserves our worship. And so Jesus is going to reveal his nature in Matthew chapter 12 by turning to the Old Testament. And we're going to read our passage in clumps this morning, which is a little bit different, but it's all right to change things now and then. So in uh, Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it says, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And this is the event that is going to lead to Jesus' teaching about his greatness. And Matthew doesn't give us a, a very particular time of the events, more generic or general when he says at that time. Because what Matthew is really focused on is not when uh, time-wise this took place, but on what particular day it took place, and that being the Sabbath. The Gospel of Mark and Luke also record this event, though Matthew has a little more information, which is why we're reading it from the Gospel of Matthew. Now, because it was the Sabbath, there were restrictions given to the Jewish people on how far a Jew could travel from one location to the other. It's roughly about three-fourths of a mile. And so it lets us understand that wherever Jesus and his disciples are, whether they're outside the city of Jerusalem or outside some other city, which is most likely, they weren't too far outside the city gates because they're only allowed to travel so far on a particular day known as the Sabbath. And most likely at this moment, they're traveling back to whatever city they're going to. The issue which emerged comes out of verse 1 is that Jesus' disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And this is an issue because the rules on the Sabbath restricted any work uh, because the Sabbath was commanded to be a day of rest, a day that you would focus on God and the day that you would keep holy. And so the problem emerged over time when God told His people you are not to work on the Sabbath but is a day of rest, the people began asking the question, what constitutes as work? 
You know, what can I do or not do so I don't profane the Sabbath and therefore I keep it holy as God's commanding us to do? And so just like we today, the people in the Bible had a similar thing. How close can I get to the line before I cross the line? So can you tell me, can you define what is work? And so this is where the group of Pharisees come in because they were commissioned by God, set apart to help the people of God understand God's laws and rules so they could live a life that is holy and pleasing to Him and to not cross the line. So in order to define what was work or what wasn't work, therefore what was permissible or unpermissible, they developed 39 traditions. So you had this one law. Keep the Sabbath holy, and on it you shall not work, you shall rest. And from that one law, the Pharisees decided, you know what? We're going to define this through 39 additional laws, so then people can understand what is work. And this can be found in the Jewish Mishnah, and became known as the oral traditions of the Jewish people, and became man-made laws. Now, when it came to these traditions, these classifications of work, I think some are self-explanatory, and some are just a little ridiculous. For example, they had laws that, okay, you cannot plow, you cannot uh, harvest, you cannot hunt, you cannot butcher an animal, because those would be considered acts of work. Those make sense. But then there's some that are a little nitpicky, meaning you cannot untie more than one knot on the Sabbath. If you untie two, you worked. That's breaking the law. If you're going to sew, you cannot sew more than one stitch. If you do two stitches, you have broken the law. You are not to write more than one letter on the Sabbath because those would exceed the amounts and be considered work and profaning what is known as the Sabbath. There's even more ridiculous rules which they made into laws for the Jewish people. For example, if a building fell down on the Sabbath, there could only be enough rubble that could be removed to discover if there was a victim underneath the building. And if that victim was alive, it was permissible that you remove the, the individual who was still alive, but it was not permissible for you to treat that individual. So they had to remain in their state until the sun went down and the Sabbath came to close. If there was someone found that was to be dead underneath the rubble, it was not permissible to remove the corpse until the Sabbath had come to a conclusion. And so when it came to the Sabbath, the Jewish people had to be very careful on what they did or couldn't do. And so it caused them to walk on these religious eggshells because they did not want to profane the Sabbath and therefore uh, make a mockery of God. John MacArthur writes that tailors did not carry a needle with them on the Sabbath for fear they might be tempted to mend a garment and thereby perform work. Nothing could be bought or sold. Clothing could not be dyed or washed. No fire could be lit or extinguished, including fire for a lamp, although a fire already lit could be used within certain limits. Baths could not be taken on the Sabbath. For fear, if you made a puddle that splashed out of the tub, it would be considered washing and cleaning. Chairs could not be moved on the Sabbath because you'd be dragging them and you might put a furrow in the ground. And a woman was not to look in the mirror on the Sabbath in fear she may see a gray hair and be tempted to pluck it out. That would be work. Now when the disciples picked the grain, it was permitted to them by the law. In the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, which is considered part of the Torah, or the Pentateuch, or the book of the law, 
Farmers were commanded that when they harvest their field, they were to leave the edges of their field untouched. So when the poor came through, they could get food and therefore God would provide their need. What the disciples do here is they're plucking from the edge of the grain field, which lets us know the wealth of Jesus and his disciples. They did not have material possessions. They did not have a massive bank account. They were completely relying upon God to feed them and provide for them. The problem was when they did this act, even though they were commanded that they could pluck from the edge, is they did it on the Sabbath. So even though they were hungry and in need, the Pharisees seized this as blaspheming or breaking the law of the Sabbath. And it causes them to jump on the case, which makes me wonder, why are the Pharisees here? Are they like a Sabbath police just waiting for Jesus to do something and to jump on them? You know, the reality is, is we're going to have people in our life who are just nitpickers. They're going to see any flaw in anything and they're just going to pick at it. And they're going to pick at it and it's going to drive us nuts. Drive us nuts. And this is what the Pharisees do. Anything that they don't approve of, anything that could have been done better, even if it was by Jesus, well, we're going to pick at it. And we're going to nitpick. Matthew describes the Pharisees throughout his gospel as those individuals who are almost always opposed to anything that Jesus does. Now, when the Pharisees question Jesus, they're questioning Jesus about the disciples' actions. And the reason they question Jesus about his disciples' actions is because they're realizing that Jesus was a teacher. This is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew to which Matthew refers to the men who followed Jesus as disciples. And by questioning Jesus concerning the disciples' actions, the Pharisees themselves were acknowledging Jesus was a rabbi. He was one who had authority within the Word of God, but they did not agree with the way he interpreted it. And Jesus, being the disciples' teacher, would have been held accountable for what he taught his disciples, because he was teaching them things that the, the regular Jewish tradition did not believe to be permissible. And so therefore, he was just as guilty as they were, even though they did the action. Now, the 39 classifications of work on the Sabbath, the disciples would have been charged guilty of, doing, of disobeying four, reaping, winnowing, threshing, and preparing a meal. Now, I don't know about you, but we have a teenage boy in our household. And anybody here like beef jerky? Not, you don't have to like the smell of it. You just like the taste of it. You know, the worst thing on youth trips is when a kid has beef jerky, right, Jason? Because you're trapped in that van and that's a field trip. Probably. Anyway, you know. him. OK, so you get a bag of beef jerky. You open it up and let's say there's nothing in it but the very tiny crumbs at the bottom of the bag. Would we consider that a meal? If you got a little nibble, mmm, satisfied. Would you even consider it a snack? Now, I have a teenage boy, and I know that if he had a little morsel of food, he would not define that as a meal. He wouldn't define that as a snack. He would keep looking through our pantry and keep looking for other things to eat. But the Pharisees see the disciples and they're literally just plucking a grain, rubbing it between their fingers or hands and then throwing it in their mouth. They see that as, as preparing a meal. This is how nitpicky they have gotten. And they're jumping at Jesus because they have broken four, 
four of our oral traditions, four of our man-made laws. They were blatantly disobeying God. But the problem was, which Jesus is going to point out, is they're not disobeying God's laws. They're disobeying man-made laws. Man-made things brought up and thought of that this is what you need to do holy, which we've talked about in our past, that we can be in danger of, of doing the same things. Don't do this, do that. You know, don't drink, don't smoke, don't cuss, don't play cards, all that stuff. We can be in danger of building all these man-made laws to prove our righteousness, which is what the Pharisees had, had developed. But the law of the Sabbath, if we want clear clarification, we found in the book of Exodus chapter 20, and also find in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 5. And this is what the law actually said. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now to break the Sabbath, according to God's law, was the death penalty. If we broke the day of rest, if we made the Sabbath day unholy, we blasphemed it, we would be liable to the death penalty. So this is a huge accusation the Pharisees are bringing to Jesus concerning what the disciples are doing. In other parts of the Old Testament, we're told the Sabbath was not just a day to focus on what God did in creation and in creating a day of rest, but the Sabbath was meant to be a day to remember God's sovereignty, that means God's authority over all things. It means it was a day to remember God's deliverance, God's protection, His provision, His holiness. The Sabbath was a day to set aside, to focus on God and therefore worship God. And nowhere in the Gospels, nowhere in the New Testament, does Jesus ever deny the importance of keeping the Sabbath. Matter of fact, we find Jesus and His disciples keeping to the regulation later in Scripture of only traveling a day's journey on the Sabbath. We see it in the book of Acts. Eventually, the disciples came to understand, look, Christ has fulfilled all the law, and therefore we are free in Christ, and so we're not held to these restrictions anymore. What Jesus is doing here is He's giving the evidence and the understanding of the ridiculousness that some oral traditions that can be developed and how they actually go against the Word of God. Twice Jesus, in talking to the Pharisees, says this statement, Have you not read? Verse 3 and verse 5 in Matthew 12. And then he goes even further to question their understanding of God's Word. But it's a great lesson for us, is our greatest defense in this world is the Word of God. And this is how Jesus defends the accusation of not only his teaching ability to his disciples, but his disciples' actions in plucking the grain. And we see that God has a sense of humor. If you haven't figured out that God has a sense of humor, then you need to lighten up. Because God has a sense of humor. He loves to crack jokes at us and sometimes make us uncomfortable. And Jesus does this. Who is Jesus talking to in this moment? In our passage, who is Jesus talking to? The Pharisees. So the Pharisees are set apart to read the Word of God, to study the Word of God, and interpret the Word of God for God's people. And twice, Jesus asks them, Have you not read? In our day, it would be, Do you not read your Bible? 
This is what Jesus is asking the religious leaders who should have known the word of God. Like, well, haven't you read your Bible today? Haven't you read your Bible at all? Don't you understand what the Bible actually says? And to justify his disciples' plucking of the grain, Jesus pulls from three types of literature in the Old Testament. In the three types we have are narrative or the writings. The narrative are the stories we like, like David and Goliath and Joshua and, you know, the, the Red Sea crossing and the plagues. We like the stories. Those are called the narrative or the writings. He also pulls from the law. We don't really like the law that much because we don't like reading the book of Leviticus or last part of Exodus or part of uh, Deuteronomy because it seems kind of, uh, you know, I don't know, boring. So we don't stick to the law, but Jesus pulls from the law. He also pulls from the prophets. So what Jesus does to justify his teaching, his disciples' actions, is he takes from the very word of God the Pharisees were to know and interpret, and Jesus interprets it for them. And he begins by saying, don't you read your Bible? Don't you know what God has actually said about this matter? The first example is in verse 3 through 4. He says to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the, fair, of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who are with him, but only for the priests. This is considered the writings of the Old Testament. This event concerns David. At this moment in time, David has been anointed king. The problem is Saul is still on the throne. And Saul's not wanting to give it up. And what just occurred before David does this event is Jonathan has now revealed to David that his father Saul is wanting to kill him. It is his desire to rid the world of David, which brings David to the city of Nob, which was located between Jerusalem and Gabeah. You can read of this story in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1-6. through 6. Now a couple things to consider. When you look in 1 Samuel, Jerusalem was not the capital of the Jewish people, nor was it the place where the Jewish people went to worship. David would set Jerusalem up as the capital, and he eventually would have the desire to build the temple there, but his son Solomon would do that. At the time of David's life in 1 Samuel 21, at first it was a city called Shiloh, to which the tabernacle rested and the people would go and worship. But when David is taking this action in chapter 21, Shiloh has been destroyed. So it's widely believed that the city of Nob has now become the epicenter of the Jewish worship. This is where the tabernacle was placed. This is where Jewish people would go to offer their sacrifices. This is where the priests would perform the sacrificial rituals. Now David's at Nob. He comes across a priest named Ahimelech. Now, according to the Gospel of Mark, in Mark's recording of the event in chapter 2, Mark says it was the time of Abiathar, the high priest. And so to reconcile the differences, Abiathar was the son of Ahimelech, and Abiathar was the more prominent priest within the family. So what Mark is doing is he's pointing to the most prominent priest in the family who would succeed his father, who actually was at the, the tabernacle the day that David shows up. It's also pointing that sometime after his event, the transition happened between Ahimelech and then Abiathar. Those are fun names to say, by the way. Back in 1 Samuel, so David and his band of merry men arrive at the tabernacle. And they're fleeing for their lives. They're running from Saul and they're hungry. 
They're in need. Do you see the comparison what Jesus is doing here? His disciples were hungry, and they were in need. And when Jesus comes, or when David comes to the tabernacle, he requests of the priest to give him and his men some food, to which the priest says, we don't have any food except the loaves which would be set aside and consecrated. You find this in the book of Leviticus chapter 24. Well, what happened on the Sabbath, every Sabbath, a priest would take freshly baked loaves, would take them into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, and lay them out. There were 12 loaves each. Each loaf represented a tribe of Israel. And they were set apart as holy or consecrated to the Lord as an offering and reminder of the covenant. The bread was only to be eaten by the priests at the end of the day because it was a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offering. But for Samuel, David has come to the tabernacle and he requested the priest, hey, I know you don't have any food, but I also know it's the Sabbath and I know you got some really good bread in there. He didn't, that's not what it actually says, but he asked the priest for five of the 12 loaves to help feed his men because they're in need and they're hungry. Nowhere in that passage, which is why Jesus brings it up, is David condemned for taking the action in eating the loaves which were holy to the Lord. And so we flip back to Matthew chapter 12. The Sabbath was a holy day. And Jesus is using the story from 1 Samuel to show that if David was innocent in his actions in taking the holy loaves, then his disciples are just as innocent by simply plucking some grains and rubbing it between their hands. And what Jesus makes in this statement can be so overread. He is telling the Pharisees that Jesus, he is greater than David. It is Jesus's authority and his teaching which has been called into question. And for Jesus to justify his disciples action and therefore his teaching concerning the Sabbath, he is revealing just as the priest recognized King David's need. And King David's authority. So the Pharisees should see Jesus and recognize his disciples' needs, but also Jesus' authorities. The lesson from 1 Samuel is the great King David had committed a far greater breach of Sabbath laws when he was in need, and he was not blamed or punished for it. The disciples are not to be blamed or punished for acting in a manner in which they did. Who's David in, in the Jewish history? He wasn't the first king, right? I mean, that was Saul. But David is a man after God's own heart. David would become one of the most revered king in all of Israel's history. It was through his battle and his bloodshed and his warfare and his commanding of armies that he brought the nation of Israel into a kingdom. When he died, his son Solomon took the reign and built the temple of the Lord where the presence of God was believed to dwell. But David paved the way for that. Jesus brings up this story and saying, as great as David was, I am greater. And since David was not condemned as guilty in what he did, I therefore do not condemn my disciples in what they do. How does that relate to us? Just think for a moment on someone you admire, but maybe you've never met. Maybe an author, maybe a, a music band, musician, 
Maybe a, a preacher you've heard on the radio or, or you've seen television programs of their preaching. Who's someone that you admire? And why do you admire that person? I think that question, I think of people for me like A.W. Tozer and his writings. I think of C.S. Lewis, an individual who's impacted me. I think of uh, Timothy Keller, someone more recent. I've never met him, but just in reading his books and growing in my relationship with God. You may think of people like Billy Graham. Maybe you're a Gaither fan and you just marvel at the way the Gaithers sing and the songs they do. Maybe it's some other music band or uh, someone more current of an artist, but you never met them. But we can put these people on pedestals, right? It's funny, we can have Christian celebrities. And we can admire them. We want to be like them. We want to mimic them. We want to listen or read or, or see everything they do because we, we feel like they impact our life. Well, Jesus is saying, these people that we can admire in our life that we've never even met, and we can put on these pedestals, he is greater. He is better. He is the supreme. And as he makes this point, before the Pharisees can interject, Matthew gives a little more about their interaction with one another. In verse 5, he says, Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Jesus is taking here from Numbers chapter 28, verses 9 through 10. See, though the Sabbath was a day of rest, the priests were still required to work by delivering the burnt and drink offerings. Again, Jesus brings out his humor. Do you not read your Bible? Do you not know what you are required to do on the Sabbath? But the priests were deemed innocent of work because their work was for the Lord even though it was on Sabbath. And Jesus is looking at these Pharisees, these men who set apart, and he's saying that he is greater than the priests. He is greater than the people that the Jewish people admire the most. They respect the most. How about this question? Who's an individual that God has put into your life that has impacted your relationship with God? And they may not still be on this side of eternity. They may already be home. But who is an individual that God has put in so that you could grow and mature in your faith and your understanding of God and your relationship with God, your love for God? And we admire those people because they, they etch parts of our hearts that we remember and our memories go back to those lessons that they taught us and what they did for us. But Jesus says, even those people who have made the most impact religiously and faithfully in our lives, He is greater. He is greater than they. The work Jesus is doing trumps any work the priest could have done on the Sabbath. And as Jesus stated previously, as we looked at, that my father's working till now and I am working. In the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews was, read, was led to, by the Spirit to reveal Jesus' greatness over the priesthood. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, it says, Since we have a high priest, 
Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Because Jesus was the great high priest, he offered a one-time sacrifice to cover all the sins through his body because he was the Lamb of God. He was the Lamb without blemish, without stain, without sin. And Jesus is saying, because God commanded the priest to work on the Sabbath, and I am greater than the priest, therefore this is why I teach my disciples that what they are doing is not in opposition to God's standards concerning the Sabbath. And otherwise, Jesus justified their work. Because the event of David and the actions of priests would have taken place at the tabernacle, Jesus moves on to his next statement in verse 6. He says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. The tabernacle will eventually become the temple in the Old Testament. And Jesus says, he is greater than the temple. Here's another question. Where somewhere you go that you are just in awe of God? Maybe it's the beach. Maybe it's the mountains. For our family, and during the year of COVID, we would go out hiking and just be amazed at God's beauty, just be overwhelmed by His presence. Those places where you break away from all the chaos of this world and you just say, wow, God. Maybe it's a sunrise or a sunset. Those things that capture our heart and just the beauty of who God is. Jesus says, I'm greater than that. I'm greater than the place where you feel the presence of God. To be greater than the temple is to be greater than where the priests were and greater than what the priests did and worked at the temple. The temple, we have to keep in mind, the temple was the physical location for the Jewish people where they believed the presence of God dwelled where he lived. It was the place where God's people could come and they could find the forgiveness for their sins. They could be restored back into a right relationship with God. And Jesus says, I am greater than the temple because I embody all of the temple. And for us, instead of working at a temple or working at the church, we join alongside Jesus on the mission that he has given us. Instead of seeking God's presence at a physical location, we now have, have faith in Christ and be given the Holy Spirit, so now the presence of God dwells inside of us. Because of Jesus, there is no longer the need for the work of the priest, because as God's people, we are now the royal priesthood. Instead of needing the offering of repetitive sacrifices for our sins, we now have faith that in the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus, which was the complete removal of our sins and our complete restoration to God, I am greater than the temple. And if I have Jesus, if you have Jesus, we understand I have full access to the throne room of grace that we might receive more grace. Jesus calls out the Pharisees, and I love how he does it first. Do you not read your Bible? And then he takes it a step further. Do you not understand it? Verse 7. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus makes this same statement numerous times in his ministry. In the context of this conversation, Jesus is pulled from the Old Testament writings concerning David. He's pulled from the law concerning the work of the priests, and now he pulls from the prophets from the book of Hosea. The context of Hosea is in Hosea chapter 6. Is God's people are appearing to worship. 
They're appearing to want God. They're appearing to love God. But God reveals through his prophet that he sees all their temporary band-aids, that they're trying to cover up their sins, but they're simply going through the motions. They have no devotion to him. They have no adoration for him. And God looks at his people, seeing that they're doing all that they're required to do, but there's no love or heart behind it. They were simply going through the motions of religion. And so they were making sacrificial acts ritualistic. And Jesus says this statement, he says, I am greater than rituals. Living for God and living for Jesus cannot be a ritualistic lifestyle like the Jewish people have made it. It has to be a lifestyle which impacts the way we treat people. The priest in David's time showed David mercy and his men mercy by giving them the loaves. That God showed the priest mercy by allowing them to continue his work even on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was created because God wants to show us mercy that we might unplug from the ritualistic things of life, the habits that wear us down, the things on our calendar that make us go, why did I do that? Why did I fill my summer up already? God says, hey, I'm commanding you to unplug. Unplug from all the stuff that is wearing you down and plug into me, the giver of life. God, he's, he's not putting it on a day. Okay, we don't have to keep it on the Sabbath. Sabbath is Saturday, by the way. But God's command to take Sabbath and to focus on him and to plug on him still stands. To find a time where we're just plugging into him and finding rest. And Jesus, when he brings this up, he's affirming what God told his people thousands of years before. God is not looking for ritualistic worship. He's not looking for ritualistic commitment or actions. God is looking for a devoted heart that shows allegiance to Him. So we can come up with all these plans, we can go through all these motions, but that doesn't impress our God. He's after our hearts. He's after our devotions. He wants us to admire and be in awe of Him. So sometimes to do that, we just have to unplug. And I love how this allegiance, when it comes to Sabbath, it's not about what we do for God. The Sabbath's a day of rest. So our allegiance to God is shown in how we respond to God. He is God and He provides for all my needs. And so I can trust Him to rest and not have to think that I have to do it all. David Platt writes that Jesus was implicitly saying to these legalistic Pharisees that the way to become right before God is not through following certain rules and regulations. The way to become right before God is through faith in Him. And then to drive home the point in verse 8, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Because this is what got them all in a hustle, 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 hissy fit, hissy fit. We'll use hissy fit. This is why they're all worked up. The Son of Man is the title that Jesus used most frequently when he refers to himself. It's taken from the Old Testament book of Daniel, which is a combination of writings and prophecy. And concerning the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7, it says, To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, 
Nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So what Jesus says when he says that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, this is Jesus throwing down the gauntlet. In our day and age, this is Jesus dropping the mic. Because he is looking at these Pharisees and he is saying, I am greater than all. They had such respect for the Sabbath. They had such respect to trying to be holy and pleasing to God. They made 39 more rules about the Sabbath. And Jesus has just paused for a moment. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. The word Lord means master. I am the master over it. I define the Sabbath. Therefore, I am greater in all. Greater than all. Douglas Sean O'Donnell writes, As the Son of Man, Jesus possesses the same lordship over the Sabbath, possessed by God at creation, an authority that gives him the right and power to render all poisonous, pharisaic superstitions null and void and to dictate whether or not his disciples' actions were lawful or unlawful, permissible or impermissible. To be Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus is looking at these accusers, these Pharisees, these religious elite, and he's saying, look at me because I am the full embodiment of the Sabbath. The culmination where Jesus says in this simple statement, the Son of Man is Lord of Sabbath, he's saying, look, I brought up King David, but you know what? I'm the King of Kings. I brought up the law, but you know what? I'm the fulfillment of the law. I brought up the prophets, but you know what? I have fulfilled the prophets. I am the greatest of all. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the fulfillment of all God is pointing to, and I'm standing right before you, but you cannot recognize me because you think you're the greatest. And that's the danger we all can be in. We put ourselves in place of Christ. We put our rituals and our plans and our dreams and our hopes and we say that we are greater but Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath so he has to be all because in Jesus we now are given eternal rest or eternal Sabbath he's not only the Lord of Sabbath he is our only Sabbath he is our only Sabbath in this world Jesus said in the previous chapter leading up to this conversation Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And what was the Sabbath for? Rest. He is our Sabbath. So maybe what we need to do this week is find a time to break away from all the chaos, from all the things going on, and just be with Jesus. Let our souls just rest in him. And if you don't know how to do that, let me just give you some, some ideas. Don't take your phone. If you got one of those watches that like to tell you how well you're doing because you stood up 12 hours for the day, don't take that with you either. Leave everything behind. Just take the word of God. And you say, well, I read the Bible through my, through my phone. Get this, because what's going to happen is you're going to get your phone and you'll start reading the Bible and a little notification will come up like, oh, someone liked my post. I should see which one that was. Or the local news channel will say, well, there's you know, a 50-50 chance of rain today. I think that's just about every day, isn't it? And, but you'll look at the radar map because you want to know, oh, okay. Take God's word. Take a pen. Take a pencil and just read it. But maybe all you need to do is just open it up and just sit there. And just be still. 
I think we have so many people that are just driving themselves to the grave because we have stopped taking Sabbath. We've stopped just resting because we, feel, we honestly feel that if we're not doing something, the world might fall apart. If I don't keep this schedule, oh my, what's going That's why God invented the Sabbath, because it's not about us. It's about what He's doing. About what He provides. And so we just stop and be like, all right, I'm just going to be still in your presence. The response Jesus gives to these Pharisees, which I'm... They're not going to get. Next week we're going to look at it. They're going to come at him again about something he does on the Sabbath. But he's revealing to them, look, I'm, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. But because I'm Lord of Sabbath, that means I want to be the Lord over every day of your life. I want to be the Lord over every week and every month, every moment of your life. I don't want to be limited to a physical location. I don't want to be your Lord at church, but not your Lord at work. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I want to be the Lord of your heart. Is this how we love and serve Jesus? Is this how we revere Him? If people were to look at our lives, would they say Jesus is the greatest thing in their life? And I think sometimes we flip it. Sometimes we get tempted and I love my wife, I love my family, but sometimes we get tempted that the greatest thing in our life is our marriage. And so we make that into an idol. As a parent, I can be tempted that the greatest thing in my life is my kids and their activities. And so I put all of what they're doing before anything else. The greatest thing in our life is, is our bank account or our check or our job. It's our plans and our dreams. What Jesus does to the Pharisees is what he's doing to us this morning. Is he the priority? Is he the greater than? Is he what we turn to and rely upon? See, Jesus has to be the greatest thing in our life because only then can we experience his rest and his peace. Maybe you're here this morning and the question is, do you know Jesus as your Savior? Jesus says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He's saying, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, which means that in this chaotic world, in this world of sin, you will never have a peace that surpasses all understanding, and you'll never have a heart and mind at rest until you are completely found in Jesus Christ. And this is why we call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John the gospel, because it is good news, because it is about a God who understands the weight and strain this world can put upon us, and he sent his son to die for our sins, for the things we could put before him. And he did, and he rose again. And the Bible says, when I place my faith in Jesus Christ and what he did, and his resurrection, and his promise to forgive all of my sins, it gives me eternal life. When I place my faith and trust in that, then I'll have eternal life. Have you accepted Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior? Have you admitted to God you're a sinner? Have you believed that Jesus died for your sins and rose again? Have you made that confession known in public? If you haven't, and you know that's something you need to do, I'm going to be standing here, and you just come down and say, Pastor Mike, I want to be saved. I want Jesus in my life. I want that Sabbath, that rest. You don't have to say that, but just tell me you want to be saved, and we'll, we'll celebrate. Maybe like, like me this week, just realizing all the things we can prioritize that has really nothing to do with God. 
I just need to come kneel before the Father and say, forgive me for becoming so distracted. God called me to a Sabbath this week. <laughs> I had to unplug, and this, Charlie knows, this was a crazy week to try and do it, and Satan tried to get everything to keep me from doing it. But it was so good. Let's come this time of invitation, the time we become hearers, not just hearers of God's word, but doers. I'm going to ask Nick to come up and lead us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us and taking care of us. Lord, thank you that you command us to rest in you. This world tells the exact opposite, to be busy, to go, to be here and there, to spend all of our time and our money and all this stuff. And you say, just stop. So I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, that this week, today maybe, that they would find a time that they would just rest and be still in your presence and become in awe of you and allow for you to fill their cup so it is overflowing. Lord, if there's someone here this morning who doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, and your spirit has spoken to their heart that they just have that uneasy feeling when the invitations come because they're not sure, but I pray that you would give them the courage to come down and be sure of their eternal salvation. I thank you for this day. I thank you for just how you continue to lead us and draw us into your presence and you show us how to do it. Forgive us if we failed you in any way. We praise all in the name of Jesus.